John, chapter 9, starting at verse 1, and we're taking the whole chapter 9. This, this really can't be separated out. It's one passage, it's one account from beginning to end, and we need to see it and take it as a whole. So we're going to be looking at John 9, the entire chapter. It's page 895 of the ESV Pew Bibles. Please join me in prayer. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we're opening to John 9. We ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We confess our need for your help to see and understand and properly uh, properly apply this passage to our life. Father, we don't want to miss what you have to say to us this morning, so we pray for you to open our eyes and see the spiritual truth that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. South African water sports professional Chris Burdish knows what it's like to be on his own. About five years ago, Burdish crossed the Atlantic Ocean solo, by himself, unassisted, unaided, on a stand-up paddleboard. He crossed 4,500 nautical miles. He set off from Morocco on December 6 and arrived in Antigua on the morning of March 9. Every day for 93 days, he paddled the equivalent of a marathon as he crossed the ocean by himself. I think we can comfortably say Burdish knows what it's like to be on his own. And this morning we meet another man who knew what it was like to be on his own, the man that was born blind in John chapter 9. This is the man who was born blind, but who was miraculously healed by Jesus. And as we will see, this man experienced what it was like to be on his own, both before his healing and and after. And even though he experienced what it was like to be completely on his own, He wasn't alone. Christ was with him. Christ met him when he was on his own. The main point this morning is this. If you stand with Jesus, you will never be alone. If you stand with Christ, you will never be alone. Let's read John chapter 9, starting at verse 1, going all the way to the end of the chapter. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is, not, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salaam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who had, been, had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus and his disciples come upon a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples want to know who's to blame for this, the man or his parents. And that question reveals the underlying assumption that they held. And the assumption was this, 
if you see physical illness, then there must have been some sin a little bit further upstream, either the man or the man's parents. So which one is it, Lord? That, that was the assumption. You, you've heard of the saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, in the ancient world, the thought was, if there's physical illness, then there's sin. That, that was the assumption. And we see, we've seen this before in the ancient world when we went through the book of Job. Uh, Job 15, verses 20 and 25. This is Eliphaz, one of Job's friends that came to help him out. He said, the wicked man writhes in pain all his days because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty. There's that same assumption. Uh, likewise, in Acts 28, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. And then here again, with, with even Jesus' disciples, they see a man born blind. Well, which is it, him or his parents? And Jesus answers, neither. The purpose for why this particular man was born blind was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was born blind so that Jesus would heal him during his incarnate ministry. This man was born blind so that Jesus would perform this sign, one of the seven signs in the book of John, and that it would be recorded in scripture forever. This man was born blind to demonstrate the mercy of God, the power of God, and the glory of God for all to see. This man was born blind so that people would see and believe in Jesus. That's why he was born blind. Verses 4 and 5, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. First of all, Jesus is talking about himself. He's talking about his own incarnate ministry. Jesus taught and ministered and healed and performed signs for approximately three years. And during those three years, Jesus was a workhorse. Morning, noon, and night. There was not a time when Jesus was not working. Jesus led a disciplined life. Jesus at no point was lying on a couch watching Netflix. Jesus had every five-minute increment in his day planner filled from the time he got up until the time he went to bed. He was constantly, perfectly obeying the Father and doing the work that the Father had given him to do. So that's, first of all, what Jesus is talking about. He has a limited amount of time and so he is going to make every minute count. And, and secondly, he's speaking to all disciples. There's that we. We must work the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. This is, this is the broader application of this statement is for us. We also must live disciplined lives. We, we understand that each of us have an hourglass. And that glass has been turned over. And the sand is descending into the bottom portion of that glass container. We don't know how much sand is in there. We don't know how much is left. But while it's falling, we've got work to do. We, we need to live for Christ. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of this world. This, this doesn't mean that after Jesus' incarnate ministry was over, he stopped being the light of the world. This means that 
compared to his incarnate ministry, when he was on the earth doing these, these works and signs and proclaiming the gospel and simply being the Son of God incarnate, that was so light, that was so much uh, of a witness and, and, and showing and displaying the glory of God that when he ceased his incarnate ministry, that could be comparatively called darkness. He was so bright with his, his presence, spiritually bright, Having said these things, what things? Having said, I am the light of the world, Jesus is now going to demonstrate that he is the light of the world. He's going to demonstrate that by giving this blind man sight. He's going to give physical sight, physical light, to show that he is the spiritual light and spiritual sight that people need. So he spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva, anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent, and he went and washed and came back seen. Now many people have asked, well, why, why go through all this trouble? Is this the Son of God or isn't it? Couldn't he have just said, be healed? And the man was healed. Yes, he could have done that. Certainly. So why, why the mud? Why the washing in the pool of Siloam? Well, remember, the Gospel of John is structured and, and the things that John has chosen to include in his Gospel are designed with one purpose, so that people will believe in Jesus Christ. So it's the same thing here. He includes these details to reveal Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, the use of dust on the ground and, and the touch points us back to the creation of man. God took dust from the ground and created the, the first man, created the body of, of Adam. So Jesus takes dust of the ground and, and recreates or makes whole the body of this man who was born blind. Having the man go wash in the pool of Siloam, which John includes that detail, which means sent, tells us that, that Jesus decided to, to heal this man by sending him to the sent waters. The man was healed through the use of the sent waters. Likewise, the man was healed spiritually through the power of the sent one. So everything included is designed to point us to Christ and show us that he is the Son of God. And also, I don't want us to miss this, um, this even early on in the passage right here, we see a progression of the man. If we were to break this down, if we had time, we could show you between the Pharisees and the man. But just briefly, there's a progression where the man starts here, but he ends up worshiping Jesus. So this is step one. He's already taking a step of faith. In, this is shown to us in the form of a command fulfillment formula. If you were here when we went through Genesis, that popped up, popped up all the time. Command fulfillment is where God says something, he issues a command, and the faithful person does it immediately after him. And it's recorded for us in scripture in that formula. Um, uh, go and do this, and then the, the person goes and does that. Well, look at this. Here it is. Go wash. So he went and washed. That's faithfulness. That's command fulfillment. That, that is there for us as an example, as a model for us. God says something in his word, we go and do it without delay. We don't hesitate. So here's faithfulness at the beginning. He, he went and washed. He obeyed without delay. Well, then we get to the reactions to this healing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar. Uh, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And they were divided, it tells us. Some of, some of them were saying, uh, yeah, yeah, that's him, that's, that's Joe. Uh, others are saying, no, that, that's not Joe, but he kind of looks like him. And, and we get this. 
Uh, there, there was probably a big difference between having a diseased and, and blind eyes from birth and then being made fully healed. I mean, the, uh, the eyes are, are, are the most animated part of our, of our face. They, they give the most expression. And there's, it would be like if he went through his whole life with these big kind of gargoyle sunglasses on and then suddenly took them off. We'd be, oh, I, I think that's you, it kind of. So we get that. That's Joe. No, that's not Joe. But the blind man kept saying, he kept saying, uh, yeah, it's me, Joe. It's me. Uh, okay, Joe, if it's really you, tell us how you got your sight back. And he, he responds with this plain, unadorned, kind of no-frills report. And that's consistent throughout this passage. He just says, he told me to wash, and I went and washed, then I see. He doesn't add his own words to that. Well, they're not really satisfied with this report and, and the lack of answers so we move on to verses 13 and 15. Before the Pharisees, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. So they, meaning the neighbors and the ones who knew him previously, um, they say, all right, let's, let's crank it up a notch. Uh, come on, let's go to the Pharisees. We're going to settle this and figure it out. And at this point, John also tells us that the healing was performed on a Sabbath. And if you remember the the Jews didn't want anybody to do anything on the Sabbath. Uh, they, they had this ultra-legalistic view of, of the fourth commandment. They had piled on hundreds and hundreds of extra man-made laws on top of the, the, seven, the fourth commandment. And they didn't like anyone breaking their laws that they had made. They didn't like anyone not doing what they told them to do. They were insulted when their authority was questioned and, and their authority wasn't followed. And this is one of the reasons why they didn't like Jesus. John 5, 16, uh, we saw this earlier. It says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, here he is again, healing someone on the Sabbath. So we know right away, this is going to be a problem. This is, this is going to be an issue with the Pharisees. And so they asked Joe, and let's just, if we can give ourselves permission to call this man Joe, I understand that's not his name, but it's either that or we continually say the man who was formerly blind but that was healed by Jesus, and that's going to get kind of awkward. So let's, let's just call him Joe. Uh, they asked Joe how he was healed. Once again, reports the facts. He put mud on my eyes. I washed, and I see. No embellishment. And just as his neighbors were divided, so were the Pharisees. Some of them just couldn't accept Jesus. They, they already hated him. They wanted to kill him, and they, they couldn't handle it because he was doing it on the Sabbath. No way, they said. This was just another log on the fire. I didn't like him before. I still don't like him. But others had to take a moment here and, and back up because this sign was so obvious, so powerful, so unavoidable, this caused some of the Pharisees to rethink their opinion of Jesus. They're saying, oh, hmm, wait a second. He healed a man that was blind from birth. I don't know. Maybe we should rethink our opinion of him. And so they turned to Joe to get his opinion. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Now let's make sure when we understand what's happening here um, the Pharisees are the experts in the law. The Pharisees are the Jewish leaders 
of Israel. They, they are the ones that claim to know more than anyone else. They are the ones that have studied scriptures more than anyone else. These are the doctors. These are the, these are the experts. Their authority is not questioned when it comes to bringing a ruling on, on anything that's, that comes up. And they're asking Joe what he thinks, uh, who was moments ago a blind beggar, who was not an expert in the law, who was not familiar, he'd never read the scriptures, he'd never even seen the scriptures. He had no credentials. And they ask him, what do you think? We want you to weigh in and tell us who this man is. They would never have dreamed to do this under normal circumstances. Do you remember back in chapter 7 where the Jewish leader sent the temple police to arrest Jesus and the temple police didn't arrest Jesus and they came back empty-handed and the Jewish leader said, well, where is he? And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. Do you remember their response? They said, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Never in a million years would they have asked someone that wasn't on the Sanhedrin, that wasn't part of the the Jewish elite leadership, that didn't have the scribal credentials, to actually render a decision like this. Unheard of. But yet they ask blind beggar Joe what he thinks. And here's the point. This shows us just how far the Pharisees are willing to reach in order to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. If they can find something from this beggar's testimony that incriminates Jesus, then they got him. So they want him to keep talking. They want him to say something that will, that will make Jesus look bad, something that they can bring the hammer down on top of him. And that's why they ask Joe. They wouldn't do that normally. But Joe doesn't give him the answer they're looking for. Joe says he's a prophet. This was the highest um, assignment of a title that, that Joe could probably think of. And if you remember back in the Old Testament, prophets were men of God. Prophets were, were sent on assignment from God. They were authorized by God to speak the words of God. Uh, they performed signs. They performed miracles. If you want to turn back to First and Second King and look at the Elijah and Elisha narratives, uh, they, were, they were performing signs left and right. They were raising people from the dead. So this was another step of faith. This was another time where, where Joe's standing with Christ, and he says, he, he's a prophet. Well, that's, that's not what they were looking for. So let's bring his parents in. Bring in the parents. Bring them in. So they call Joe's parents in, and they ask them to say, uh, something and, and address the situation and they, they want to hear anything other than what Joe's testimony is and, and anything other than Jesus miraculously healed this man born blind. Anything other than that. So let's hear from the parents. And look at verse 20. Watch how Joe's parents distance themselves from their own son without hesitation. Without skipping a beat. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Well, that's a pretty safe thing to say so far. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. 
Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. Mom and dad just threw Joe under the bus. Their own son is standing before them and they take a hands-off policy. I don't want to get involved. Talk to him. And John gives us an explanation for why they did that. They were afraid of their leaders. It had been made known that anyone who confessed that Jesus was the Christ was to be put out of the synagogue. So there's two things here. Number one, uh, this is an example of ungodly leaders. Uh, The Jews hated Jesus. Uh, Many of the Pharisees and leaders had this capture and kill order out on him already. They didn't like him. They hated him. But that wasn't enough. Uh, Like all ungodly civil leaders, and that's who they were. They were the judges. They were the legislators. They were the rulers. Like all ungodly civil leaders, they weren't satisfied with their own opinions. They didn't limit themselves to public safety, education, the collection of taxes, the distributions and spending of that revenue for the public good. No. These leaders made it criminal to think or hold a belief different than their own. You either step in line and believe the same things we believe or we're bringing the hammer down. You're you're not allowed to voice an opinion or speak out against what we declare to be true or else we're going to make life extremely difficult for you. We're going to put you out of the synagogue. And that's the second thing. Put out of the synagogue. This is not um, just an idea they had. This was a formal thing. And to be put out of the synagogue, uh, to say that that was a big deal is an understatement. And it was a two-sided coin. On one side, it meant excommunication from all things relating to worship and the synagogue and, and the temple. And then on the other side of the coin, it meant the equivalent today of being like socially canceled. Okay? So side one, the excommunication side, to be put out meant that you were prohibited from entering the temple, you were prohibited from entering the synagogue, you could not participate in public worship, you weren't allowed to bring sacrifices into the temple, you weren't allowed to offer up prayers in public worship, you, you couldn't hear the scriptures being read and taught in the synagogue, and remember, the vast, vast majority of people did not have their own copy of the Old Testament scriptures. Which means if you didn't go to the synagogue and hear it read publicly, you didn't hear it. You couldn't read it yourself on your own time and at your house. It was, it was something that was read to you. So you were cut off from worship and from God's word. That's, on, that's heads, excommunication, tails, being socially canceled. Sometimes it would include a ban of all contact from all other Jews except your spouse and your children. Uh, Sometimes it could last 30 days. It could be temporary. Sometimes it was indefinite. Sometimes it could be for life. Sometimes it wasn't just a a ban on all contact except your your spouse and your children. Sometimes it was everybody. You were were not to have contact. And there was to be a four cubit. A cubit was about a foot and a half. So a six foot zone where you were supposed to not get within six feet of any other Jew, including your spouse and children. 
Either way, everybody stopped talking to you. They stopped selling to you. They stopped buying to you, buying from you. They stopped engaging in business with you. This was a severe economic boycott. You typically lost your job. And regardless, you became an object of scorn and ridicule in the community. Everybody's keeping that six-foot buffer zone and, and whispering and pointing. Mothers are, are keeping their children back, saying, don't go near that person. That's what it meant to be put out of the synagogue. That's why Joe's parents threw him under the bus. They didn't want that. In fact, the average Jew would rather accept flogging than being put out of the synagogue. The average Jew would rather be publicly whipped with cords rather than being put out of the synagogue. That's why they threw him under the bus. Well, they didn't get anywhere with the parents, so let's bring Joe back in. Another round of questioning. It says, For the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. The first thing they say, that's a charge. That's a solemn charge to tell the truth. Give glory to God. And that comes from Joshua 7.19, where Joshua addresses Achan. This is the man who kept back some of the devoted things and kept them in his tent. And Joshua said, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So this is their way of addressing the man and saying, look, we, we know this. You, you, you could have lied to us before, but all right, that's it. Just whatever you said, we're willing to overlook it. Tell us the truth now. Give glory to God. You're, you're, telling, you're saying this before us and before God as a witness. Tell the truth. It was a solemn charge. And then the second part, look at that. We know that this man... Jesus is a sinner. We know this man is a sinner. Do we understand how blasphemous that is? To call the perfectly holy God sinful? And yet they're so sure of it. Their unbelief has blinded them. They can't see their hand in front of their face spiritually. We know this man is a sinner. We know the earth is billions of years old. We know we evolved from apes. We know all religions are valid. We know abortion is not killing a baby in the mother's womb. We know gender is fluid. We know this man is a sinner. Joe answers. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Joe can't comment. He he doesn't know Jesus. He he can't comment on, on the man's past or his character reference. He doesn't even know how he was healed. He does know this, and he professes it with boldness. Now remember, Joe stands... to face the same punishment his parents did. If Joe doesn't fall into line, he also risks being put out of the synagogue. And he knows that. But yet he speaks with boldness. This is another step of faith. He stands with Christ. He stands with the truth. He refuses 
to be bullied into denying reality. He's, he's not going to be intimidated into saying what they want him to say and believing what they want him to believe and denying what actually happened and, and denying the truth that's in front of his now able to see eyes. No way. He stands with Christ. He does not back down. And so to their face, he says, one thing I know, I was blind, now I see. That's my testimony. Do whatever you want. Well, that seems to be like a dead end to them. So now they ask, how did Jesus do it? Look at their persistence and unbelief. All right, forget that. Let's see. How exactly did did he do it? Maybe we can find something wrong with his methods. What were the mechanics of how exactly he, he healed you? Let's see if we can find something wrong there. In verse 27, Joseph says, we've been over this. How many times do you want me to tell you the same thing? You wouldn't listen to me the first time. It's not going to be any different this time around. You can hear the exasperation in his voice. Do you want to become his disciples? That's sarcastic. That's sarcasm. It's been a long day for Joe. Now, we, we've moved through it relatively quickly because it's one chapter. But think about it. The, the healing took place. He had time to go back home, interact with his neighbors. They talked with them. They brought him to the... The Pharisees, that took some time. They questioned him. They sent him out. They brought the parents in. That didn't go well. They took the parents out. Now he's back in. This has taken the better part of the day. And he's kind of at the end of his rope. He's losing patience for being on trial, for receiving his sight. And so he fires off a sarcastic remark. I mean, look at this guy. First of all, a refusal to back down and change his story a bold statement of certainty about receiving a sight, and now he's answering the Sanhedrin with, with sarcasm. I'm starting to like this guy. Joe, Joe's on the right track here. Well, he must have known that this comment would have provoked a reaction, and it did. Verses 28 and 29, and they reviled him. Reviled means to spew out harsh and abusive language. NIV says they hurled insults. At him. NASB says they spoke abusively to him. So use your imagination on what that entailed. But after hurling abusive insults at him, they made sure that Joe knew that they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. We're followers of Moses. We know God spoke to him. This guy, who knows? Who knows where this guy came from or who he is? And then Job goes on the offensive. No more sarcastic one-liners. Look at verses 30 through 33. He begins to teach them. The blind beggar who moments before was sitting in the street, literally, no, no schooling, no education, illiterate, never even read a book, begins to lecture the Pharisees on spiritual things. This is like a like an illiterate homeless person walking in off the streets of DC and start lecturing the Supreme Court justices on how to practice law. Well, he's never even read a book. That's what's going on here. And we can almost picture Joe kind of walking back and forth of the, the leaders with his hands clasped behind his back and he's, as he delivers a short course on how Jesus has to be from God. So let's break down his argument, see if it stands up. God does not listen to sinners. True. God does not listen to sinners. Now, this does not mean that God doesn't listen or hear the prayers of a repentant sinner who's crying out for forgiveness 
and reaching out to God in faith. That's not what it means. It's talking about unbelievers who are walking in ongoing, unrepentant sin, who are by nature rebellious and and, uh, opposed to God. But at the same time, that, that sinful person who is not of God in a time of crisis or if they selfishly want something, or in this case, if you're a charlatan and you're trying to pass yourself off, as a miracle worker, uh, that person, God does not listen to their prayers. God does not answer or listen to the prayers of sinners. Psalm thirty-four, fifteen: the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, says the psalmist, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. And this is in Proverbs, uh, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Zechariah. This is all over in the Old Testament. So the Jewish leaders would have known this to be true. They couldn't have argued with it. So they had to have accepted this. Okay, yes, we get it. God does not listen to the prayers of of sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. This is talking about a genuine believer. This is talking about someone who not only worships God outwardly, but inwardly from a changed, regenerated heart. Someone who's, who is genuinely a follower of God, who walks in obedience. Yes, God answers and listens to their prayers. They would have known this. They would have accepted this. This is... Um, all over um, Old Testament and New Testament scripture. And then he says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And he's saying, in the history of the world, this has never happened. This isn't like an exception that we see once in a while. This has never happened. Um, Someone born blind at birth, maybe someone with temporary blindness, um, maybe someone who had, who had diseased eyes who had, you know, or blurry vision and it got better. Okay, but someone blind from birth? No. No, that, that doesn't happen. And even today, with all the treatment options available, with everything we know in modern medicine, that doesn't happen. Once, once you damage the optic nerve, you don't come back from that. In other words, this is a divinely worked miracle to go from total blindness blindness to total sight instantly has to be from God. That has to be a miraculous healing. Only God can do that. And then his closing argument, therefore, he says, if this man were not from God, then he could do nothing. This may be the only time in the history of the world that the Pharisees were schooled by a blind beggar from the street. And they knew he was right. They could not reject this this logic. They couldn't reject this argument. The only thing they could do is just flat out ignore and refuse to believe reality and truth that was before them. And at this point in verse 34, they're like a rat in the corner. They have nowhere to go. They've been, their, their hypocrisy has been exposed. They, they have nothing to do but lash out. And so that's what they do. Uh, they, they couldn't stand to be taught by, by blind beggar Joe. So they said, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. And just like that, Joe gets put out of the synagogue. The highest penalty 
that a Jewish person could receive religiously and socially. Excommunicated, canceled in the community. So if he thought he was on his own before, and he was, uh, blind beggars would, would sit somewhere and simply wait for people to toss a few coins in their direction. They, he, he probably had a regular spot where he sat and called out for alms, and he depended on, upon the mercy of people, ultimately on the mercy of God, to receive enough where he could buy something to eat at the end of the day. He was alone. He was blind before he was shut off, isolated from the community. If he thought he was on his own then, he's really on his own. Cut off from family. We, we've talked about this before. If we think family is important today, multiply that by a thousand. Your identity was formed by your place in your family and your place in the community. Cut off. Cut off from family, cut off from neighbors, cut off from the synagogue, the temple, cut off from sacrifices, cut off from the reading of scripture, and a complete economic boycott. What irony. The very first day he's actually able to go to work, now no one will hire him. He's been put out of the synagogue. He is completely on his own. He is in the middle of the ocean of life on a paddleboard and he turns around in 360 degrees and as far as he can see on the horizon, there is nobody. Nada. Not even his parents. He is on his own, but he's not alone. Verse 35, Jesus heard they had cast him out. So this isn't the same day. This appears to be after some time for that news to circulate in the community. Having found him, Jesus found him, which was easy to do. He's the guy sitting alone with a six-foot buffer zone where nobody's coming near him. Jesus sought him out. He approached him. He spoke to him. If there was some kind of executive order from the Pharisees to socially shun this man, Jesus didn't obey it because he went to him and he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is a challenge question. He's saying, others disbelieve. Do you believe? Others reject my teaching. Do you believe? Others follow me for a while, but then they fall away. Do you believe? And the man responds in faith. Just tell me where he is. Who is he? Point him out. I'm ready. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This is a profession of faith. This, this is a profession of faith accompanied by an act of worship, whether he fell on his knees or he raised his hand and praised, whatever it was, he is worshipping Jesus. He is ascribing the same worth and value and worship to Jesus that is ascribed to God the Father. And Jesus accepts it. Verse 39, for judgment, I came into this world. If you were here when we went through John 8, 15, where Jesus says, I judge no one, then you've heard us talk about judgment. Jesus came into the world. When he says, I came into this world for judgment, he doesn't mean that he's coming into the world to set up a booth and act as a, a judge to settle disputes in the street, nor is he coming with a judgment in the form of assigning uh, punishment and, and wrath and penalties. 
It's a matter of timing. Yes, Jesus is going to judge the world. That's coming later. He came in his incarnate ministry to complete the work of the Father, to go to the cross, to proclaim the gospel. But the judgment he's talking about in verse 39 is a judgment of making a distinction, a judgment of making a division. As Jesus proclaims the gospel, those words fall on the hearts and the ears of people, and they are divided. Their response puts them in one of two directions, like a highway that splits off. There's, you can't go forward. You have to go left or right. It's the same thing when Jesus proclaims the gospel. You either hear and believe, or you hear and reject. You don't hear spiritually, and you reject him. That's what he's talking about, that, that kind of judgment. For those that are proud and hard-hearted and who think they're good people and don't need to repent and believe in Jesus, they're spiritually blinded. They're unable to see salvation. For those that do not claim self-righteousness but acknowledge their sinful state and respond to Jesus in repentance and faith, they're given spiritual sight. They can see and they believe. Verses 40 and 41, some of the Pharisees happened to be standing close enough to overhear what he was saying. How would you like that, by the way? Everywhere Jesus went publicly, he, has, he had his enemies hovering around with earshot, just waiting, just waiting for him to mess up, just waiting for him to say one little thing so they could catch him. That's the kind of stress Jesus lived with. So there they were, and they said, are we blind also? He says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. He's simply applying verse 39, talking about that judgment, to to them. He's saying, yeah, um, if you would have acknowledged your sinful state and believed in me, then you would not be guilty of the sin of unbelief. But because you are hard-hearted, full of pride and self-righteousness, then yes, you are blind. And your guilt remains. Your sin remains on you. On your own. The summary statement of this passage looks like this. Jesus' disciples asked who had sinned to cause a certain man to be born blind, and Jesus told them no one sinned and caused the man to be born blind. He was born blind so that Jesus could display his glory by healing him, which he promptly did. The man healed of his blindness was questioned by his neighbors, acquaintances, and ultimately by the Pharisees, And his responses were consistent, concise, and truthful. The Pharisees were determined to disbelieve that Jesus had worked a miracle, so they questioned the man repeatedly and also his parents. The man who was healed eventually showed the Pharisees that Jesus must be from God. The Pharisees responded by putting the man out of the synagogue. Later, Jesus found the man he had healed and asked him if he believed. The man believed Jesus and worshipped Jesus while the Pharisees continued in their unbelief, revealing their own spiritual blindness. What a passage. Do you see how we had to take it together? You really can't split this up. The healing of the man born blind is one of the seven signs in the book of John. And you remember, signs are designed to communicate and to accomplish two things. Number one, to authenticate the person and work of Jesus. And this sign did that. Only God can restore the sight of someone born blind. This is a miracle. 
And this miracle screams the fully divine status of Jesus Christ. There's no way to get around it. Only God can do that. Jesus did it. Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God. It's undeniable. Uh, The only way to turn away from this is like the Pharisees. Purposeful, willful rejection of reality. So it authenticates the person and work of Jesus. Number two, to serve as grounds for believing in Jesus. Everything that John includes and, and throws into his gospel is to help people believe in Jesus. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then he promptly, promptly gives this blind man light, physical light. And that points to spiritual light. Jesus is the one who opens people's spiritual eyes so they can see their sin and their need for salvation. So the question that emerges from John chapter 9 is, are you able to see your sin and your need for salvation? If not, you may think it's possible to please God on your own. On your own. You might think that through your own good works of being a loving father or mother or being a good parent or working hard and providing for your family or following the golden rule of doing unto others as you would like them to do unto you. Or, or maybe you can point to your lack of scandalous skin. I've never killed anybody. I've never robbed a bank. Or maybe just your good reputation of being a decent person. Honest. Whatever you have imagined in your own mind as sufficient for gaining entrance into heaven and for pleasing God, you may think, I can do this on my own. I can cross this ocean of separation between me and God myself, solo, unassisted, and unaided. If I do my best from, from keeping from messing up really bad, like killing someone, then, then I can pull this off on my own. I'll just keep paddling and keep moving forward. I'll just keep being a good person and God will let me in. And, and maybe you can't imagine God ever saying no to someone who does their best to be good enough on their own. If that's you, I have some really bad news. You cannot please God on your own. It cannot be done. You cannot get to heaven on your own. You cannot forgive your own sin. You cannot live or be good enough for God to declare you righteous in his sight. Jesus said this, Luke 18, 19, no one is good except God alone. I don't think we have to do a a comparative word study on what no one means. That means nobody, not you, not me, not your, your grandmother, not your sweet, cute granddaughter, nobody. Nobody is good except God alone. That means no one on their own can please God. The Achilles heel of self-righteousness is self-deception. It's self-deception. Everyone who thinks they're going to escape hell without following Christ believes it can actually be done. They think they're the exception. Where others have failed, they will succeed. You don't understand. They say, I work with the homeless. Okay. You don't understand. I I give my time to an animal rescue. Great. 
You don't understand. I've, I've devoted my entire life to humanitarian aid. Okay. In reply, I would answer by saying, so you're telling me you know that you can get to heaven without Christ. Do you see what I mean about self-deception? So sure, just like the Pharisees, we know this man is a sinner. I know I can do it on my own. I wasn't at the funeral, but I heard uh, recently of a man who was at the funeral of his father. Neither were believers by any biblical measurement. And the man was consoling himself. And he said, I know he's up there. He couldn't even bring himself to use Jesus' name. He, he couldn't even bring himself to say, I know he's in heaven. He couldn't even bring himself to say, I know he's with God or with the Lord. He, he still kept that distance from anything spiritual and just was kept telling himself, I know he's up there. And if I had been there, I, th- I think I know the man well enough. If I had been there, I might have said as graciously as possible, how do you know that? On what grounds do you know that? And what is up there? Can you tell me what that means? The Achilles heel of self-righteousness is self-deception. The Bible says we cannot enter the kingdom of God on our own. Because a lot of people think it's this balance scale with the two trays hanging by chains with the, the fulcrum point in the middle and They think, well, if I just do enough good things, then that'll outweigh the bads, and then God will let me in. It doesn't work like that. There is no scale. That's not how it works. You can't do enough good things to earn your way into heaven. The Bible teaches us that we are born sinners. We are born under the headship of Adam. The Bible talks about two heads, Adam and Jesus. We're all born under the headship, the spiritual headship of Adam. Adam fell, he sinned in the garden, Therefore, all those born in Adam, and that's everybody, is born with a sinful nature. It's our default state. We can't work our way out of it, no matter how much good works you do. There needs to be a heart change. There needs to be that heart of stone removed by God and a heart of flesh, a spiritual heart. The Bible talks about new life. You need to be born again. It's not just fixing this old broken life. It's discarding that, being born again in Christ. Uh, Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass, meaning Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, meaning Jesus, leads to justification for all men. Romans 5.8, But God shows us his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not good people that go to heaven. It's sinners who have turned to Christ in faith. We need Christ. We need his righteousness and we need his blood. We need that righteousness because he's the only one. If it was a scale, he's got all good deeds and no, nothing sin, nothing sinful, no bad deeds at all. In fact, he's got more. (laughs) Not only does he have anything that we could possibly achieve, he has has more than that. He has everything that God requires, perfect moral righteousness. He's got that and his blood paid the penalty for our sin. And the good news is when we turn to him in faith, Spiritually, when we repent and believe, that all becomes ours. 
the righteousness of Christ and the penalty paid under the blood of Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 8. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, that justified means declared righteous in God's sight, allowed into the kingdom, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We can't do it on our own. If you are standing with Jesus, then you're not alone. Christ is with you. You stand with Christ, Christ stands with you. Or to put it another way, if you remain with Christ, Christ will remain with you. And he will be there on the day. Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father, who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father, who is in heaven. If we want Christ to stand with us before the Father, then he wants us to stand with him now, today. If this is you, if you have ever entertained thoughts in your own mind that you think that you can get to heaven on your own, turn to Christ today. Don't wait. But we also need to hear this as believers because there are going to be times when we feel on our own. There are going to be times where we feel completely cut off. Or there are going to be times where we feel like Job. Uh, Probably not to that extent, literally, but there are going to be times where we feel very alone. Uh, At school, I can speak to the students here for a minute, either K through 12 or college or technical school. I mean, those can be some dangerous waters to navigate. Because of your faith in Christ, there are going to be times where you might feel the heat. You might be excluded. You might be treated differently. You may feel alone. You may be on your own, but you will not be alone if you're in Christ. At work, uh, as HR policies become more and more influenced by anti-Christ cultural norms, there may be a day where you're sitting in the, in the conference room, and as you look around, you're the only one who's not on board with the latest changes. And that may have some impact on your job. You may be blacklisted for promotion. Officially, you can still apply, but HR with their own files may say, you know what, this one really isn't on board with our values. I think we'll keep looking. You may feel alone, but if you're in Christ, you will not be alone. Or maybe family get-togethers. I've heard of several stories of families that have managed to get along years, maybe even decades, but all of a sudden things are a little different. Things are starting to heat up a little bit and you find yourself at these family gatherings and everybody is of one mind except you. You're the oddball. You stand out. And it's surprising how quickly family get-togethers can go from laughing and catching up to serious and straight-faced, maybe even irritation. Because of your faith in Christ and where you stand and your worldview and where you come down on the issues, all of a sudden, you're being unloving. You're the offensive one. You may feel on your own, but if you're in Christ, you're not alone. And that's the world we live in. We don't see that changing anywhere In the near future, this passage teaches us if we stand with Christ, we are never alone. 
because he stands with us. You may be on your own, but you are not alone. Christ is with you. Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. But but make no mistake, in John chapter 9, first of all, let let me say this. Very rarely in the Gospels do we see Jesus giving this kind of one-on-one time with anybody. Very rare. This kind of personal, I'm coming to you, it's just you and me, revealing himself to this extent, being this upfront with who he am, who he was, and, and, and worshiping. I mean, that, that is extremely rare in the Gospels. Do you think Jesus would have come to Joe if before the Sanhedrin he changed his mind? Do you think Jesus would have given him this private audience and revealed himself if Joe would have said, you know what, fine, he's a sinner? I don't think so. Mm -mm. No, Jesus met with Joe because Joe stood on the truth and he stood in faith. If you stand with Jesus, you are never alone. Even if, like blind beggar Joe you find yourself on your own and cut off. Christ is with you always. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your word and for this uh, window into the life of one man who was had his life transformed in a matter of hours who went from rock bottom, who skyrocketed to to the top and then back down again socially. And yet we see the gospel. We see your word calling us to faith. We see your word calling us to stand with Christ. Father, we ask that we would... Believe in Jesus, keep believing in Jesus, and never back down. And Father, we understand that even though it might get dark, even though it might get rather alone in this world, you are with us, you see everything, you know everything, and you reward faithfulness. So Father, help us to stand with Christ, help us to stand in faith, leaning fully on the completed work of Jesus Christ in our behalf. Amen.